So should we start? Let's yeah. do it. Welcome to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe found us on the podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found, including greenmajority.ca, which is, which is our website. My name is Stephen Hostetter. We're here with a special episode today, joined by Tim Nash, the sustainable economist, the CEO of Good Investing, CEO and founder of Good Investing. Thank you so much for being here, Tim. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Let's dive in with just like, how are the markets doing, Tim? <laughs> Not well. Yeah. Uh, it's been a pretty rough year so far. You know, if you're just looking at it from a sort of year to date perspective since January, uh, it's been pretty rough. Uh, stock market is down, you know, about 20%. Uh, even the bond market is down, Stefan, like normally bonds are like the safe haven or sort of the turtle in the race. Bonds are down, you know, 10 to 15%, which isn't great. And it's pretty rare that stocks and bonds fall at the same time, but that is the environment we're in right now. Um, but that really where a lot of the sort of carnage has happened is in a lot of these more speculative investments. So if you had a lot of your money in cryptocurrencies, right? Or in a lot of these kind of like tech pandemic tech darlings, you know, companies like Peloton or Shopify or Zoom, you know, these companies that did so well during the pandemic, you know, that, that saw their valuations go up a lot. Uh, a lot of those things are down, you know, in the ballpark of about 70% right now. You know, Bitcoin and Ethereum, the main cryptos are down about 70% from their highs. You know, some of the... the um, uh, <laughs> I'm not allowed to use the word in radio that I normally call them, but they'll call them the crap coins, you know, in the cryptocurrency market. These are the coins that are less prominent. A lot of them are down even more than 70% right now. So, you know, really what we've seen is a big shakeup in the markets, whereas 2020, you know, post-pandemic, like we saw the pandemic crash and then governments and central banks really stepped up to the plate with these recovery programs and with what we call easy money policies where you know interest rates were so gosh darn low for so long that that you know allowed markets to surge in 2020 and 2021 was a great year you know everything was up 20% in 2021 but that now we're in this situation where we're starting to unwind that that uh, easy money policy that interest rates are now going up we have inflation right now, which we haven't had this bad for decades and decades. And everyone is complaining about, you know, the price of food and the price of gas and, you know, all of these prices are going up, which is squeezing people. And I think there is some concern right now that we could be heading into a recession if we haven't already, if we're not already there. A recession is defined as two quarters of negative growth. Now, it doesn't say how bad it needs to be. So there's always this idea of sort of, you know, a slight recession versus a really deep recession, right? But the idea is that I do think it's likely that we are in a period right now 
yeah, where the economy certainly isn't growing, is probably down a little bit. And, you know, if it was down a little bit last quarter, which I think it was in the US, you know, or if it's down a little bit in the next quarter, all it takes is those two quarters of negative growth. And, you know, we could very easily be in a technical recession, which doesn't really matter, like whether the economy grows by half a percent or falls by half a percent, doesn't really matter either way, but has huge psychological impact that I think we're starting to see people cut back on spending. We're seeing companies cut back on investing and certainly some, some job losses taking place. And really everyone, I think the, the psychology right now is sort of expecting a pretty rough economy for the rest of the year. And so I think we're all sort of battening down the hatches and tightening our belts or whatever analogy you wanna to use to say that, hey, like, you know, let's make sure that we've got our, our expenses under control and, and really making sure that we are gonna have enough money to ride out the storm. Yeah, what, what I find interesting about this a little bit is like, we talked about this last year and the year before and the ways in which the vibe of the market was so out of sync with the vibe of people, right? Like yeah. the, the markets were, were, were increasing, whereas I don't think anyone I was talking to at the time was like, yeah, things are great. Totally, right. na we're nailing it. You know, there were similar concerns around a whole bunch of things. People, you know, many people are out of work, all these different things that were impacting the daily lives of people, which in some ways, some of those things have now decreased, right? We now actually have more people out back in the job. You know, more people are working yeah. now than definitely were, you know, two years ago. And, and outside of inflation, a lot of the other ways that people experience their daily life is certainly improved. And yet we're now sort of in the reverse. Whereas like people are just getting out of their houses. They're beginning to get excited to see friends again. You know, they're starting to experience life again. And now the markets are like, oh, actually, no, everything's terrible. <laughs> and, and it's like, we're, it, it's weird to me how consistently out of sync these things seem to be. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard the expression before that really markets are a reflection of sort of the whims of the wealthy, right? So, you know, when the crash happened and in 2020 with the recovery, Right, we talked about a K-shaped recovery, where the wealthy people were doing really well. They were the K arm that pointed upwards, where you know assets rebounded, real estate was doing really well. If you owned a home, you know you're doing great. Like all these assets, you know, for the wealthy increased. Whereas you know a lot of people living paycheck to paycheck and sort of living on the margins were the down arm of that K-shaped recovery, where they were struggling a lot more than they were before. And I think this is part and parcel with our government and central bank response to these crises. I mean, we saw it in 2008, 2009, where the financial industry got totally bailed out. There was the single largest transfer from, you know, the, the poor, like taxpayers and regular people to the wealthy in the history. And, and probably 2020 was an even bigger transfer of wealth in terms of these government responses that it seems like there's lots of money you know if if the banks are in trouble or if the auto sector is in trouble or these may you know sort of these asset owners are in trouble but there's never enough money for universal basic income there's never enough money for you know uh, odsp people living with disabilities who are on government support you know that really it to me it's about those priorities and kind of how that government uh, um, uh, uh, sort of spending shakes out. But no doubt that right now, you know, markets are weird. They always have been, they always will be. They don't necessarily reflect what's going on now. They are generally viewed as predictive 
uh, uh, functions such that you know they're ahead of the curve. They already price in expectations about the future, right? So they're never supposed to be about what's happening right now. They're always supposed to be a little bit ahead of the curve. But the problem is that you know you end up with this sort of oscillation between greed and fear. And again, this is really only among people who have money, who have assets. There's a huge amount of privilege in being able to invest in the first place, right? It means you've got more money than you need. You've got more than enough. So you're able to put it aside for the future. But the, it really is, you know, from this place where we had 2020, March 2020, extreme fear. We were really worried about the economy, you know, imploding there for a little bit. But then with government stepping in and central banks, you know, making money cheap, it was interest rates were so low, it was really easy to borrow money, there was a lot of cheap money in the market, people who had access to that, were able to borrow and a lot of them speculated, a lot of them put money on these high risk bets. You know, whether it was tech stocks, whether it was crypto, you know, a lot of those sort of, you know, highly speculative asset classes did very well. Um, but then now we're in this funny point where, okay, you know, the real economy has caught up with us. Inflation, it's kind of weird, like we were worried about deflation for a while, right? But then now largely because of supply chain issues, right? With lockdowns in China, with like, I don't know if you've been following the shipping backlog, but like the price of shipping things around the world is so expensive. And, you know, because of, of a lot of these issues, the war in, in Europe as well, you know, adding to that, that really uh, inflation has taken off. And then the central bank response to inflation is to raise interest rates, right? But what that's done is mean that all the people that borrowed money to invest in these highly speculative assets, you know, everything's more expensive now for them. A lot of them got burned and they were forced to sell, which is why things went down, I think, by so much. Um, but that it's, it's a really interesting time. Um, but the advice for people, you know, it's pretty simple. It's kind of go back to the basics, like try to sort of like channel your grandma that lived through the depression right now. You know, it's like, don't borrow money for things you can't afford, right? Like really people want to limit their debt right now as much as possible. And then it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, keep, keep it simple. Um, we always talk about the three R's, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. Well, we know that recycling is a bit of a problem. It's not what we thought, hoped it could be. So it's really about the first two. It's about reduce and reuse as much as possible. Um, I think now's a great time for people to use some of these uh, used marketplaces. So whether it's Kijiji or Craigslist or, you know, Facebook marketplace, like how many people just have closets full of things that you don't use anymore? Like sell that, get it out, like get some money for that. Like that's, you know, those are assets, that's money that's just sitting around your closet at the same time. You know, if you need to buy something for the house, don't go on Amazon and buy it new. You know, for so many people, I think that is the default setting. Look on those used marketplaces, right? And just really be able to reduce your costs, you know, limit what you need, keep things simple for the next little while. The, it will take some time for the market to shake up. Um, right now, companies can increase, it can increase costs a lot faster than labor can increase costs, right? So I expect as prices go up, we do expect the labor market to catch up with that. But again, it's easier for Loblaws to raise their prices on groceries than it is gonna be for you to negotiate a raise, right? So, but just know that like, hey, like if prices keep going up, you are gonna need to negotiate a raise at some point, 
right? And so let's just kind of keep things simple as much as possible and, you know, really uh, focus on what we have control over, which is just being really smart about our spending. Yeah, and we'll get to that in a second. I, the one part, though, I, I do find uh, also interesting what you just said there is the ways in which using these more local markets you know, does actually keep money in the community and in the yeah. in your own local community, right? Like there's, I, I, I've become more and more interested in the ways in which a thing like an Amazon extracts money from communities, right? Like the people who are having shareholders in Amazon and the people who have, who are making money off Amazon do not live next door from you. They're inherently a global thing. And maybe it's a little bit cheaper, but like, it doesn't mean that you know you buy something from your neighbor or from something local. That person's probably buying some mails from local. You know, it keeps money within a, a much smaller community, which keeps everyone there wealthier. Instead of the ways in which these global systems can just kind of extract money from communities, leaving you with like, yeah, you got your thing maybe two days faster, and maybe it was a dollar cheaper, but your your neighbor is now still hurting, and whereas right. they could have, you know, that could have gone to support them or somebody else. And there are huge externalities, right? Like if you think about Amazon, the cost the, the, of, of transportation and the CO2 emissions they're in, the cost of the labor, because we know they don't treat their labor great. So there's some exploitation that's happening there. Like someone is paying those costs. It actually is quite expensive to bring it. But I want to push back on your thing that, you know, this idea that it might be a dollar cheaper at Amazon. It's not if you're buying it used. You know, this is really my big beef with the whole sort of green, you know, eco-friendly sector right now is that the dominant psychology is that this stuff is more expensive, that if you want to be good for the planet, your costs go up and your quality goes down, right? Like how many people like to make fun of organic food, you know, and, and paper straws, right? That those are like the, these huge trade-offs that you're getting ripped off, that it's a worse thing. But what I'm really focused on are ways that you can actually reduce your impact on the planet and save money. And like the easiest way to do that is by buying stuff that's used, right? Like if you just buy, you don't buy it on Amazon. Like if you can buy it from your neighbor, your neighbor isn't going to charge you, you know, the market price of a new thing, right? They're happy to get rid of it. You're going to get, you know, a big discount on that, right? And obviously it depends, like not for everything, Tim, like there are always exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, you know, don't like, I'm not saying go to your like super expensive local farmer's market, mm. you know, where it's like pay a premium for these things. I'm looking at ways to be able to lower your environmental footprint, but also save money, keep dollars in your pocket. Right. Right. And that to me is the win-win that those are the easy solutions that everyone ought to be doing. With gas prices so high right now, you know, it's amazing the interest in like electric cars and, you know, hybrids and, you know, you can't buy, there's like a two-year wait list, but like, don't buy a new Tesla if you're worried about gas prices. Use public transit, use your bicycle, right? Like those are, that's where we should be going first, right? Right? Is like use less, like reduce and then reuse and not just reuse for yourself, but reuse within your community. Someone's got access to, you know, to something that the, the, a bicycle that they don't need anymore, instead of buying a new, you know, bike for however much, a thousand dollars, right? If you can buy a used bike off of Kijiji, you know, from a neighbor, not from, not a stolen good, you have to be careful <laughs> with these black markets, right? But presumably if it is from someone who has a bike who doesn't need it anymore, you're going to save a huge amount of money on that bicycle, 
while also like preventing a new bicycle being made and all of the environmental costs that go alongside that. So to me, it's, it's gonna be those things that I really want people focused on is reduce and reuse, not even reuse your own stuff, but reuse within your community. Um, I think one thing that, that you know, has been really good for me is I'm starting to grow some of my own food. So I've got like a little vertical garden and there were costs associated with setting that up. But now that it's up and running, I pay like, I don't even know, like 30 cents a day in energy costs to run a pump and some LEDs. And, you know, I get all, I get free lettuce. It just grows. It just, I cut it back and it just grows back. Like it's amazing, right? So being able to like grow some of your own food, not all of it, but some of it, right? Being able to like these things that we're normally, we would buy and there'd be a huge, like think about when I buy lettuce at the grocery store, the whole supply chain, right? The transportation, the labor, like everything there. Whereas like, I can just literally grow it in my back room. So, you know, to me, it is those solutions that I think people should be looking at first and foremost, that, you know, we just don't have control over the economy. We don't have control over the markets. A lot of us even don't really have control over our income. You know, if you're just like working for an organization, like maybe they can't afford raises right now, it's going to be hard for you to negotiate. But we do have control over these, you know, pretty important important facets of our life. And so by really focusing in on that sort of reduce and reuse, and then also looking for little substitutes, things that are really expensive, you know, can you swap it out for something else, right? Like, you know, instead of going on a vacation where you fly to Europe, like, can you do a road trip to Tobermory, you know, something like that, where, you know, you can swap it out. Um, meat, I know is really expensive. And with supply chains and inflation, the cost of meat has gone up a lot. You know, can you eat less meat and maybe eat more like pulses, like lentils? and beans, you know, that, that these are all really good ways to be able to save a lot of money, but not also reduce your environmental footprint and really push back against this sort of eco market of like, you know, premium, you know, it's sustainable, but you're paying this huge premium price for it. You know, there are a lot of uh, eco-friendly options that are actually going to be substantially cheaper than the status quo. Right. Yeah. And so on that uh, quickly, I'd be curious, how you might, you know, scale that thinking up, right? Like, you know, in the ways in which, you know, the, the, those things are clearly like individual sort of actions and, and yeah. stuff you can do around that. And, and there, you know, but people do, you know, what you, you are looking at the market, you look, are looking at the ways that people interact with things. Yeah. Is there a way to sort of scale up from that sort of, you know, those two, something that might if, impact markets or at least might impact people's investments or, or the ways in which they're thinking about, you know, at least their savings right now, which, yeah. you know, if they have some, which I think, you know, people at least, yeah. have at least a few. I mean, definitely like just understand that we are, we do participate in the economy, right? So the economy is sort of this global, this, this, this global thing. And so the more people are using these parts of the economy, the used marketplace, et cetera, the more robust those parts of the economy become. So there is a scale up that the more we do it, the more energy is there, the more action is there, the more everyone is going to go there. Um, at the same time, you know, I think it's really important, probably one of the biggest places for people to save a whole bunch of money in a way that will compound over time is through their investment fees that, you know, and this is obviously my world, like what I do is I help people invest sustainably, but a big part of what I do is getting people out of mutual funds 
and into these things called exchange traded funds or ETFs. And so really it's like, you know, I think people are looking at ways to sort of tighten their belt and to be able to, you know, reduce their personal expenses. Um, but one of the places, you know, it's easy to look at it from a consumption perspective. But uh, for me, I look at it through the investment lens. And, you know, I've been talking to a lot of people within the environmental community lately. And I talk to them, they're like, I own mutual funds. And I'm like, oh, do you know about the fees that you're paying on those funds? They're like, don't worry, Tim, I'm only paying 2%. And like, I've heard that from several people lately, I'm only paying 2%. And I'm here pulling my hair out because 2% is an extraordinarily high fee to be paying every year. And I don't think people understand how investment fees work. Um, so I wrote a blog post uh, about a week and a half ago called uh, Mutual Funds Are a Ripoff. And, you know, trying to be a little, uh, a little spicy there in terms of my language and get people's attention, but that really it's about, you know, introducing this concept to people that, you know, obviously I want people to make intentional decisions about the sustainability of their investments, but I also want them to make intentional decisions about the fees that they are paying. So I did a little exercise in this blog post, um, basically teaching people about this acronym called MER, Management Expense Ratio. And the MER is code word for annual fees. And for mutual funds, the average mutual fund MER, the average annual fee is that 2%, which doesn't sound like a lot. You're like, oh, it's only 2% because most of us think like 100%, but you know, I'm only paying 2%. But that means that you're paying 2% of your money every single year. And right now, you know, markets have been down, like, we'll see, I don't have the crystal ball, but my sort of projection assumptions, you know, are that a, a balanced portfolio will generate about six and a half percent returns per year, like six and a half percent, not bad, would be a conservative estimate of your annual return. But if you're paying 2%, your returns are going from six and a half percent down to four and a half percent. You're actually losing it a huge chunk of the returns that you would be getting otherwise. And so I did some math on a 100K portfolio. So if you've got $100,000 invested, right? That means a 2% MER means that you're paying $2,000 a year in management fees. For what? Meanwhile, with ETFs, these exchange traded funds, they're basically the same thing as a mutual fund, but way lower fees. We buy them directly on the stock exchange. Right. And so you can, instead of paying 2% a year, we can pay about 0.25% per year. So from 2% down to a quarter of a percent. And at the same time, as you're thinking about your investments and lowering your fees, you might as well consider the sustainability of your investments, right? Like you're making a switch anyway. This is a great time to look at what's inside and make some intentional decisions about what's inside. There's this website I love called the T-Rex score. And they calculate this guy, Larry Bates, he wrote a book called Beat the Bank about how banks are just sort of a ripoff and especially these mutual funds and how people can kind of beat the bank and take control of their own money. And so with this 100K portfolio, right, earning six and a half percent a year, if you're paying that 2% over a 30 year horizon, you're going to be losing almost $300,000 in fees. So instead of having, you know, just that, have that compound, normally that 100K would turn into 560 
$1,000, if you did nothing and just let it compound at 6.5% every year for 30 years, you'd end up with 560K, right? But you're going to lose more than half of that in management fees. It's absurd. This is how banks make so much money. This is why people don't have as much money in retirement as they ought to be because they've been behind paying these management fees. Whereas by switching to ETFs at a lower fee, you know, you're still going to be paying fees, some fees over time, right? But instead of that almost 300K, you're only going to be paying or losing about $43,000 in fees, meaning that you're going to keep like 92% of that money. It's the difference between retiring with, in this case, you know, sort of what you're able to get is kind of is, is uh, having uh, $520,000, that 100K turning into 520K versus if it's fees, that 100K is only going to turn into 270K over 30-year horizon. So I know that's a lot of numbers. Forgive me. This is me being a bit of a math nerd, but it's a concept that people don't understand is that really how much they're paying in fees. Ask the question, what is my MER? Understand the fees that you're paying, that 2%, it's not just 2%, 2% is really high. And that this is an action that people can take, you know, like the other things we talked about, very simple. It's not going to change your quality of life owning ETFs instead of mutual funds. They're pretty much the same thing. But this can save you not only like hundreds of dollars every month, but literally will allow you to, to retire with hundreds of thousands of dollars more in your retirement account. It's wild. It's wild how much money people can save in management fees. Well, I mean, I mean that is a lot of money, undeniably. Uh, and and honestly, I think you know anything that any way we can pull our some money out of the sort of financialized system that we exist in is almost certainly a a better thing than just you know having the banks that are you know as many as has been very clear. Let's bring funding fossil fuels. A, a better option, right? The more money we can pull out of, like you end up losing 2.5%, that's $100,000 that, that is easily now being funneled into a whole bunch of stuff that we are fighting against being yeah. being supported right now, right? The number of banks that are supporting big fossil fuel companies is, is huge. Um, so sort of moving even further into the into this conversation about the market, there's been, we talked about this a little bit the last time you were on the show and it came up, I think, would have been a couple of weeks ago, this idea of sort of what, you know, what ESG, yeah, the debates going on right now around ESGs and honestly, even the way that it's being framed, I find interesting, you know, mm. like in the article I referenced two weeks ago, the Bloomberg thing was sort of like, it's not ESGs that are making them leave. And even that was a weird framing to me because it's like, why on earth would it have been, you know, like right. given what it is, but it's clearly kind of, it's almost become a bait word, right? It's almost becoming a yeah. way to, to sort of get people to click on it because it's become such a weird hot topic, despite it being, I know I would say rather innocuous, uh, but perhaps you can give us a, a brief reminder to folks because you said it before on the show, but a reminder to folks what ESG means and then <laughs> sort of parse out this weird fight that's going on about it. Yeah, totally. So um, really very interesting times in my space. So ESG refers to this acronym, environmental, social, and governance. So we've kind of seen an evolution of the acronyms, okay? That, you know, when I started in this space 14 years ago now, the two big acronyms were SRI, socially responsible investing, and CSR, corporate social responsibility. 
right? And so people that have been following this space, they probably recognize that language. Those two acronyms are out the window. You don't need to know them any, any, anymore. That now high level, you know, we do talk about uh, sustainable investing or simply responsible. We've gotten rid of socially. It's just responsible investing or sustainable investing would be sort of that high level term. And then one of the tactics that's being used is evaluating companies for their environmental, social, and governance data. And so it's important to understand that when it comes to investing, we've always done this form of analysis, right? So as an investor, I'm gonna analyze a company to see whether it's a good investment or not. And traditionally that has solely been a financial analysis. So I'm looking at their balance sheet, I'm looking at their income statement, I'm looking at you know, their financial health. And that all of these other issues relating to sustainability were viewed as externalities. They were outside of that analysis and frankly, completely ignored or dismissed. Well, now, thankfully, we have these research companies and these analysts that are now doing this ESG analysis and looking at individual companies on their environmental, social, and governance issues. And so ESG has become sort of this broad term. Now, part of the language is confusion around it, that some people view ESG as a noun. And so they're like, you know, talk about, you know, ESG as if it's a thing. ESG isn't a thing. Sustainable investing is a thing. ESG, it's like a tactic or a strategy or more of a lens for us to be able to look at companies. ESG investing isn't itself a thing. It's just that investors are now doing ESG analysis alongside traditional financial analysis. Um, so what's really interesting is that, you know, for the longest time, nobody knew what the heck I was talking about with this stuff, right? And that now, you know, sustainable investing, it's hot. You know, it became a pretty big trend. And people were talking about it. And that uh, what's happened is that ESG has come under fire, really from two different groups for two different reasons. On the one hand, you have the sort of far right conservatives come attacking ESG as quote unquote woke capitalism, okay? And for them, it's, it's a danger. I can tell they're like afraid of it, right? We've got um, Peter Thiel, who's like, Peter Thiel is a big guy. He was involved in PayPal and in like the Silicon Valley or venture, venture capital part of the world. He's big into cryptocurrency and he was at a Bitcoin conference right? And he said that ESG is a hate factory, right? Because through ESG, by looking at Bitcoin through this environmental lens, we saw that, hey, there's a huge carbon footprint associated to Bitcoin. And so, yeah, a lot of us environmentalists were like, hey, like, we don't like Bitcoin for this. But according to him, that's like a hate factory, right? Uh, we've got, you know, um, uh, uh, farmer U.S. President Mike Pence, and so he gave a speech at an oil conference in Houston, Texas, and he said that liberal activist investors are forcing private companies to abide by ESG investing principles, elevating left-wing environmental, social, and corporate governance goals over the interests of business, saying that this is a concern that we're coming after the free market because we're elevating environmental, social governance issues above profit. That's obviously BS. We want to make profit as investors, like that is what we want. And the way that we can do that is by making smarter decisions, which of course should include environmental, social and governance issues as we're making those uh, financial decisions. So, you know, it's really interesting to me this attack from the right 
which is saying that sort of ESG is BS, you know, it's woke capitalism, it's, you know, counter to free markets, which is really funny for me because to me it's a very pure expression of free markets that investors get to choose how to invest their money and where to invest their money. And if you care about these issues, that's a choice that you can make now, right? So there's a really interesting dynamic there, but that's kind of the one side of it is that there is this political sort of from the right, sort of really trying to bash ESG for being sort of like woke and leftist. You know, the other criticism is kind of coming from the other side where a lot of environmentalists also think that ESG is BS, but they think it's BS because it's greenwashing because it's not doing, it's not making an impact that it's sort of, you know, um, uh, 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 there's one uh, a guy, Tarek Fancy, who, you know, he used to work in the sustainable investment field and he's now become a bit of a whistleblower. And he talks about how it's giving wheatgrass juice to a cancer patient, that we have these huge issues and that ESG is just a placebo, that it's not actually doing anything, right? And that, you know, a lot of people I know who are on the more radical or anti-capitalist views, they're just like, no, ESG, it's too capitalist. It's still this system, you know, it's still this within this capitalist system, the structures, it's not, it's not going to change the world. And no, it's not going to. It was never supposed to. You know, ESG is a tool to be able to allow investors to make smarter decisions right, regarding these sustainability issues. And so, you know, it's really interesting for me because I find myself sometimes defending, like wearing my like economist hat and defending ESG against these sort of environmentalists saying like, actually, you know, this is a good thing because it forces the markets to at least incorporate some of these things. It's better than nothing. And it's not a silver bullet, but it's part of the solution. But then I'm kind of wearing my sort of like, you know, environmentalist hat, defending it against these, you know, right wing people saying, hey, like there's actually, you know, capitalism is about more than just money that we, the, the economy depends on people. It depends on a healthy environment. These are core systemic risk issues that we need to be addressing. So, you know, it's always, it's, it puts me in a funny spot where I'm kind of like, you know, I guess, you know, defending on two flanks here. But, you know, really interesting conversations happening around sustainable investing and ESG. And to me, it just really shows that I think the problem right now is one of communication and education, that I think there is a gap between what people think sustainable investing is and then how the banks and the financial system has kind of like created this little sustainable investment niche that, you know, there's definitely a bit of a, a, a knowledge gap there that obviously I'm trying to fill by coming on the show and doing other things to be able to educate the marketplace and let people know that A, it's not the devil. Like it's not, this isn't, ESG is not about destroying the economy, right? In any way, it's not a socialist scheme. You know, it's very capitalist. Uh, on the other hand, it is very capitalist. That it's not a socialist scheme, right? Like it's not designed to create a collaborative economy based on, you know, uh, uh, um, love and, and empathy and understanding. That it is still very much a financial uh, industry doing financial industry things. Right. Yeah. That, that's, that's a funny way of sort of, yeah, it, it like it, yes, it is capitalism is a kind of funny argument in that it's sort of both ways, right? It's like it just being like accepting that fact, you know, it is just this thing. Like, yeah, it's a way of thinking about this slightly more deeply, but I do think that it, it speaks a little bit to a, 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 a conversation that we've been having a bit on the show previously, last couple of weeks, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it, which is, you know, 
because like the ways that you know the ways that ESG I think in some ways aims to do this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is it's like accepting that you know these companies exist in a broader system, right? That these companies exist in a in a system that you know that has an earth and has people and you know has and, and government structures matter, and and you can't just exclusively focus on the on just the on just the money piece of it to understand you know how we exist, and yet. The thing that I have been coming to again and again on this show the last couple of weeks is the ways in which, even from a free market perspective, we have seen in the past. I like I saw a, a tweet the other day that sort of was indicating that like I think it was the forty biggest companies in Europe all were founded fifty years ago or before, and you know and or the ways in which we see here, you know, the ways in which like Galen Weston moved from being a bakery to basically now theoretically being responsible for privatizing healthcare, you know, like the ways in which these companies, because they are able to slowly set up systems for themselves that benefit them, you know, it, the other thing we talked about last week on the show, you know, was the ways in which the European Union is trying to renegotiate with fossil fuel companies how much they have to owe them if they put in policies to reduce fossil fuel emissions. And, and then I referenced even you know, the way the United States farm bill also basically just, you know, creates this weird incentive for companies, for farmers to just massively produce just corn, even if no one actually wants corn, but it's that that's what we're going to do because that's where yeah. the price floor exists. And all of these things to me speak to a way in which the quote unquote free market doesn't exist. And you see it again, actually, in the ways that major utilities, like some, what's interesting is looking at the states in here in Canada, some of the places where we're seeing the slowest change in terms of, uh, of towards more carbon-free uh, carbon renewable energy isn't always a right-left thing. It's a, does a major utility basically have a monopoly? And they're just like, no, I don't feel like changing. I'm going to keep running this coal plant because I can versus you know, actually having new players come in because, you know, solar right now is cheaper than even yeah. keeping coal online. And so it, it feels like in so many places we are kind of static and being held yeah. in this world where if there were seemingly less regulations or more regulations, you might find <laughs> ways out. And yet we're in this total middle ground where in some places you have, again, you have these you have utilities controlling the ways in which we are doing things or government regulations controlling ways which we have to keep giving these old companies money. And then yet we cannot start regulating them in other ways. And so it's, it really does feel like we're in this sort of, we're stuck in part because we've allowed this, we've allowed the system to calcify. Right. And, and, and I'm curious your thoughts on, 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 on that and how we might even break out of it. Oof. Well, I mean, let's, do, let's start, start by hard. defining it first. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. And I'm always happy to talk about solutions. So, you know, really what you're discussing, um, you know, is this notion in economics we talk about, which is market power. Okay. And that you're right that there is no free market. There never has been. All markets have been regulated in some way, shape, or form. And, you know, liber purely libertarian, like that market, you know, we've never really seen it exist and frankly, nor should we, because there, there are two things that govern, that govern these decisions. Number one is market power and number two is incentives. 
And if there are no regulations at all, if it's an entirely free market, the incentive structure goes, you know, to hell in a handbasket. And that if, if game theory, you know, predictions are true, that it would just lead to rampant cheating and stealing and exploitation and tragedy of the commons until nothing is left. So we don't really want an outwardly free market. Now, because we don't have a free market, the question is how free should it be? And this is this question of market power. And so market power exhibits itself in a few different ways. Uh, one of the ways we have it a lot here in Canada is through this term called oligopolies. Uh, oligopoly, this is one of my favorite concepts to teach in my economics course. I always imagine like Lord of the Rings and like those oliphants, you know, those giant, you know, elephant war creatures, right? Kind of marching in because an oligopoly, we know what a monopoly is, which is one company has complete control over the market, mono one power source there. Um, an oligopoly is when power is concentrated in a few different firms. It's not a monopoly, but it's still an oligopoly where they can kind of work together, whether it's officially done or not, in order to keep prices high. And Canada is just rife with oligopolies. We can talk about our grocery stores. We can talk about our airlines. We can talk about our banking system. We can talk about like to everything. Like Canada is just rife with these massive industries, you know, or industries dominated by a few small uh, uh, or a small number of players, but those players are very large and they just have complete control and there's no room for competition. Like think about telecom, you know, Rogers Bell Telus. Remember when like, you know, we were gonna have more telecom. I forget when the US providers was gonna come in and then they didn't. And that, you know, there are these little upstarts that like get started and they come and then they get bought by one of the big ones that, you know, it's such a concentrated industry these oligopolies have a huge amount of market power. Now, when you have market power, right, what do you want to use that power for? And right now, the incentive structure, and because they are publicly traded companies that must maximize returns to shareholders, they want to use that market power to maximize profits. That's the system that we have. That's, what, that's the assumed incentive structure, right? They actually have a legal responsibility to do that. And so what does that mean? Well, for consumers like us, it means they get to jack up their prices, right? This is a big problem with inflation is that companies can raise prices before labor can. We talked about this before, right? And so, you know, and it's because if there was a lot of competition, they wouldn't be able to do that. But guess what? It's oligopolies, so they have price control. They can raise their prices, especially if they all do it together, which they do. The other thing they can do is they can lobby government. And I think this is really what you're talking about now, that we're in a problem where, you know, and this is a market failure that in economics, we do have these market failures. Tragedy of the commons is a common one, right? Another one that we're experiencing now is called regulatory capture. And this is where the regulatory bodies get captured by the companies they're supposed to be regulating, right? It's like, you know, the, if you're playing basketball and, uh, you know, the players had the ability to lobby and, you know, provide incentives and donate money to the ref salaries, right? That they are, and they use that power. Of course they do. And certainly this is a bigger problem in the U.S., but it's still a pretty big problem here in Canada. 
such that what we find is because, you know, and it could be because of our party system and the donations that they get there. It could be because of like who's running for politics and the incentive structure that, you know, they're looking for jobs after when they're done politics. So they want to sit on the boards of these companies, right? There's a lot of intermingling that happens. We can talk about the incentive structures and, you know, kind of how that all plays out. But the, 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 the reality is right now that we are in a world where companies have, I would argue, just as much, if not more power over our governments than the electorate does. Now, there's a very simple solution to this, Stefan, very simple, which is that people can vote and companies can't. Now, companies can influence elections, but they don't get to vote. And so people can vote. So this is the check and balance that is supposed to exist within our society is that actually at the end of the day, we get to vote for the referees, right? That we get have that power and control, but our electoral system's kind of broken right now. Voter turnout in Ontario was abysmal, such that it was what? I saw like 16% of the electorate gave the Doug Ford a majority. So, you know, we kind of have this busted system right now. So in my mind, you know, part of ESG and one of the things I really look at is corporate lobbying, that I want that information. Okay, you know, Galen Weston, who are you lobbying? How much? Who are you donating money to? How much? Let's look at this. Let's understand this. And let's, there needs to be a price there or a consideration there in terms of which companies we're investing in. And are they, you know, and some people might view that as a good thing. It'll increase their profits. But those of us, you know, sustainable investors might view that as a risk, as a bad thing that, you know, if a different government gets in or if there's a, a change up there, this company could be in trouble. So, you know, but really that is the world that we are in right now is one where the power structure is largely in the hands of publicly traded corporations right now, that regular, regulatory capture is a huge problem, right, within our regulatory system that these checks and balances that were supposed to be there have themselves become politicized. So, you know, just recently the, the US Supreme Court decision about the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, you know, very political decision saying that, you know, the government can't create laws to force these utilities, like the utilities won that battle, right? That they now, you know, those interests, those polluting interests were able to influence this huge judicial decision, right? That is not in the best interest of the people, right? But that is in the best interest of those who want to preserve their power, who want to keep profiting while they pollute. So to me, it's like, you know, it's, we're in a bit of a tricky situation right now where, you know, it's hard because everyone's like, you know, individual action doesn't matter. It's all about systemic change, right? That's a big part, but the systems are so broken. How much impact did I have by voting and by participating in the, the provincial election, right? So to me, it's like, I come back to locus of control that my thing is always, I'm gonna sort out my backyard before I tell anyone else what to do. So I am focused on personal decision-making, personal accountability, but understanding, all the different ways in which I interact with the economy and with the government and with these power systems, making very intentional decisions about how I do it, but looking for ways where I'm not sacrificing my time 
and my money and my energy, you know, so that I end up with less than what I had before. And instead looking for these ways where I can, uh, it, you know, improve the outcomes for myself, still get what I need and, you know, what I need to have a good, happy, healthy life, but in a way that's going to save me money and that's going to save me time and that's going to save me energy, recognizing that the more I participate in this manner, right, encourage other people to do so, like that's where I want to spend my money is helping other people do the same things that I'm doing to buy, you know, or buy less, like to be able to, you know, use these secondhand marketplaces to be able to, you know, grow their own food, to be able to invest their money sustainably in low cost funds. Like that's where I'm putting my energies into helping other people do these things to support themselves kind of selfishly. But obviously having that intentional way such that everything that I do is reflected in the broader system. And that when I have an opportunity to be able to impact that broader system through my advocacy or through my voting or through my investments or through my consumption or through my actions, you know, I'm certainly going to take that opportunity. What you've identified there in regards to this, like this truly difficult place that we sit in is, is the thing that maybe we'll end on in some ways, because we're, we're just heading out. So I'm going to give you one last thought and then we'll, then we'll, We'll end the show. Actually, well, I'll thank you, and then you can do your last word. Um, but, um, but yeah, like, like I guess what I'd leave the listeners with for for me on this on this one topic at least is is really just I am truly struck by the ways in which right now feels nearly impossible. You know, the ways in which right now feels like any avenue that someone says, oh, this answer is an option you can very easily begin to be like, yeah, but this and this and this and this, you know, like, like if someone like, you know, the ways in which right now the go vote Democrats are sort of getting shouted down because like we did vote, you're currently in power, you have every single set of power. And yet what is happening? Literally nothing. And you can't say vote harder if you have the control of every single elected branch of government. That's not a useful argument anymore. You've like, what do you want? <laughs> we, we did it. Like, you know, like in some ways the voters and sometimes have, have literally done the thing that was been stated as what we need to do to get action and we're being left out to dry. Uh, you know, and, then, and then other places, you know, like here in Canada, you identified the ways in which our voting system really disempowers people. Like, you know, again, 16% of people voted for the Doug Ford Conservatives uh, who are eligible to vote and they hold a majority. And everybody else who exists in, in who existed and voted or didn't vote is left with this reality and 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 it's hard to sort of you know and, and then and every year you end up with these weird circles of like okay well should i try to vote strategically or should i do xyz and that comes back in a, a way that is not helpful and it's like what we actually need to do is create a system where your vote count matters no matter what it's not hard to do that or at least many like you know a proportional representation for example not 100% of votes matter, but like it's a pretty high percentage, right? It's yeah. like, you know, there's a few rounding errors, but it's not, it's not, you know, 65%, like, or whatever it was, maybe 60-ish percent that were totally just, you know, now will leave us to be sort of sitting around wondering what they're doing. And, and so, yeah, I mean, for if anyone who is feeling like this is a particularly rough and difficult time, you're right. I just want to identify, like, I do want to just level with people because I, I, you know, I don't, 
I don't, I can't entirely see the path outwards, but I do think that the answer, you know, from, yeah, you, as you've said, or when you read things like emergent strategy and some of these other sort of activist, you know, more activist stated books or, or thinking is, is this, this idea of like continuing to do the work and continuing to move forward is ultimately the only answer. And because giving up has will only lead to failure. Giving up will hundreds of lead to failure. Trying and working on things and doing your best in the areas you can and seeing your areas of influence and trying to be kind to yourself and others while doing so is is really the only um the only path forward that I think for those of us who want to see a better world are, are really left with in this moment. But also I think letting yourself feel the fact that like it is particularly bleak right now is also totally fair. Um, so I'll give you a chance to respond to that or to list your last <laughs> thoughts, uh, however you want to end this, but this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Tim Nash, uh, the founder of good investing and friend of the show. Thanks so much for being here. And yeah, response thoughts as you wish. <laughs> I'm normally the optimistic, right? Like I'm so, so this is why it's, it's hard to be an optimist these days. It's hard, right? And, you know, certainly it does feel like we're. Uh, against the grain, swimming against the stream, you know, running uphill, whatever you kind of want to analogy you want to use there. Um, but it is exhausting. And so to me, it's like, number one is to look after ourselves that, you know, I need to be in a good place emotionally, financially, spiritually, before I can help anyone else. You know, what is it put the, you're on an airplane, put the mask on yourself before you help anybody else. So, you know, just really want to empower and give people permission to sort of put on their own mask first when it comes to these things that really we need to look after ourselves. Um, you know, that said, I think that what keeps me going is that, you know, it's really easy to, to I think, uh, overestimate the amount of change that's going to happen in like a year or two. It's extremely easy to underestimate the amount of change that's going to happen over the next 10 years. And that we are at a number of different inflection points um, in our systems, environmentally, socially, and economically. And things are approaching breaking points in a number of these systems. At the same time, I am seeing a huge appetite for a different way of doing things. The problem is that the people who want to do things differently generally speaking, don't have as much power right now. There are a lot more of us, but we don't have as much wealth. We don't have as much economic power or political power, right, um, to, to be able to enact that change. So really, to me, it is about understanding our sort of locus of control. What, what do we have control over? And let's use it in a way where we bring people together and stop fighting with each other about necessarily the best solution, right? But instead, you know, people come to me all the time. They're like, Tim, I want to work in sustainability or I want to be part of this. You know, what do I do? What should I do? What does the world need right now? The world needs you to be your best. So find that light inside of you, whatever sparks you, whatever makes you just shine brilliantly, do that and be vocal about doing it and show other people that light because they're gonna be attracted to that. And they're gonna find you and they're gonna say, hey, I want a piece of that light, I'm gonna do that too. And you know, for me, that just happens to be sustainable investing. 
right? Where it's just, I'm just so, so passionate and I'm such a nerd when it comes to this stuff. So I'm just going to keep focusing on that, but do it in a way where I'm not, I don't want it to cost people more. And I, I don't want to call, you know, for it to, to be an, a, 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 a trade-off that people have to make. I want people to be able to make these decisions, come out better financially, and come out with a better solution for society and the planet. So when you can find one of those win-win-wins, right, where it's going to save people money, it's going to, you know, help the planet, and it's going to help people get treated better, you know, just run with that solution. Um, and really, you know, to me, it's like use our opportunities. There are going to be moments in time. And I feel like we are coming up with these inflection points where it's like, you know, sit, stand up or sit down. And I want people to stand up in those moments. Right. But at the same time, I think it, it, it's really like look after yourself that this is going to be a marathon, not a sprint. And so whatever you need to do to kind of look after yourself and make sure that you're family and that your close social network is looked after like focus on that first right now I think we're I'm kind of feel like we're in mode of survival that rule number one is survive then we're going to get to the point where we can thrive but to me it's just like hang in there this too shall pass the pendulum swings often very very quickly and there are a lot of things that are giving me hope um, you know, power structures and politics aren't one of them, you know, but when I look at some of these new technologies that are coming out, you know, I feel like we're one technology, battery storage technology away from a renewable energy future. When I look at these, you know, economic solutions that are coming out, things like community bonds and things like these local networks and economies, you know, really put your energy into the things that are going to allow your light to shine brighter. Um, and, you know, that are going to help you and help the world that you're a part of.